0: Even though we are a bespoke tailor's very, very you know, a heritage brand, uh, we are working very, very hard to be as relevant as possible to the the current, the current consumers. Uh, because if we don't prove our relevance, we we die. And and you'll be surprised, or maybe not surprised, to hear that you know we are actually very open to using technology wherever wherever possible. Because fundamentally, our number one priority as a retailer is to give our customers the best possible service. And what I'd say is even though we've got you know, bespoke cutters and bespoke tailors um, you know, in the basement at number one Savile Row today working away, wherever possible around them, and, and actually even in the customer interaction itself, um, if we can utilize the latest technology to improve everything from the service and experience to the lead time, uh, then we have to do that to, to, remain, to remain relevant.
1: You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me every Tuesday and Friday when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice on making in the UK. Let's crack on with the show. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Make It British podcast. The title of this episode is Craftsmanship versus Technology. And that was the topic of discussion that took place at Make It British Live. So in this talk, which was chaired by Lucy Siegel and features our panellists, who are Mark Randall from Galaxia System, Nick Kite from Savile Row, Taylor, Geese and Hawks, Andy Ogden, from English Fine Cottons, and Professor Stephen Russell from the Future Fashion Factory. Everything was discussed from how relevant technology is for UK textile manufacturing and whether it will help to make the future of UK textile manufacturing more viable. They also talked about what innovations and technology will help UK manufacturing in the future. And we even threw a bit in at the end about apprenticeships and skills. So I hope you enjoy listening to this episode. And now over to Lucy.
2: Okay, welcome to our second panel of the day. Uh, in this panel, we are discussing craftsmanship versus technology. As with all our panels today, we're putting a versus in the middle so we can get you all fighting against each other. But in reality, it won't be like that, will it? There'll be, there'll be some consensus, I would imagine. Um, Please do, as ever, chip in with your question. An absolutely brilliant expert panel here, so I just know that you will have questions for them. I will try and bring you in, but... If I'm looking in the wrong direction, you can just shout at me or wave at me, whatever. Um, okay, so I'm going to introduce you to the panel members. Then we're going to get a sort of position statement from each person just for a few minutes. Then we're going to have a little discussion. And then it's uh, it's your turn. Okay, I hope that sounds all right. Okay, so I'll start with Nick. Hi. Hi. Nick Kite joined Savile Rose, Jeeves and Hawks as Managing Director in October 2016, He's on the all-party parliamentary group for international trade and investment, so he can tell us exactly what's going on. Brilliant. We need some clarity. As well as the Walpole Mentorship Programs Panel for High-End Consumer Goods. He's a Walpole mentor at London Business School. And before Jeeves and Hawks, he was at the John Lewis Partnership as head of buying menswear and travel. You're very welcome. Thank Thank you. Then we have Stephen, Stephen Russell from Leeds University, who is director of the Future Fashion Factory, which I hope you'll tell us a little bit about. Um, Stephen Russell is Professor of Textile Materials and Technology at the School of Design at the University of Leeds. His main areas of expertise are in textile engineering, textile design, and manufacture. That's a lot of areas of expertise. Great. Great to have you with us today. Um, In addition to academic research, he has nearly 15 years in product development and as a company director in the textile industry. So, welcome to you as well. Then we have Mark, Mark Randall, who is the founder of Galaxius, which we heard briefly about in the last panel, actually. Um, from Caroline Ash, um, Mark has been in IT for thirty-five years and spent the last five producing the Galaxius solution, focused on getting traceability back into the garment industry. Yes, we did lose it. If anyone is uh, not <laughs> not familiar with that, um, back in two thousand and four, his stepmom owned a large garment manufacturer and Mark was called in to provide an IT solution. This sparked the idea for Galaxias. In 2014, Galaxias was at Fashion Enter, so that was the project, and it was a, a huge success there. And then, um, last but by no means least, we have Andy. Andy Ogden, one of the three founding directors of English Fine Cottons. Sorry. Started in 2015. Its aim is to bring cotton spinning back to Britain. Andy has been at the parent company, Kulimata Safeguard, for 17 years. Prior to that, he was. EMEA sales director for an international safety equipment company and has been involved in industrial textiles and safety equipment for 30 years so we've got a really diverse range of experience and expertise is here so please do not fail to ask all your questions because you'll only get one chance I'm sure they're all shooting off straight away afterwards okay so the question we are discussing craftsmanship versus technology which is not a question <laughs> I could kind of make it into one um, but let's start with you, Nick, if you if you don't mind. And give us your current mood. If this was social media, I'd like your current mood on craftsmanship versus technology.
0: Okay, so um, can you hear me? So um, firstly, I just want to say it's a privilege to be up here today. speaking
2: right into the microphone.
0: Is that better? There yeah. you go, right, yeah. It's really close, isn't it? Okay, so um, so firstly, uh, it's lovely to be here today. And um, you know, I, I'm here to represent my business, which is basically Geeves and Hawks. Uh, I'm the managing director and I've been in post for three, three years. Uh, Gives and Hawkes is not, it's not a well-known brand actually, it's a very well-established brand. Uh, we were established in 1771 by a gentleman called Thomas Hawkes. Um, and the traditions of the company are, are very much in bespoke tailoring. So uh, Thomas Hawkes was actually a tailor to the military and um, Geeves was a tailor to the Navy, and in fact, they only combined in, in the 70s. So um, my, my piece in this discussion is, is about the importance, the absolute importance of uh, firstly supporting you know, made, made in Britain, where, the, where that is commercially viable, uh, and secondly, ensuring that by supporting uh, Made in Britain, we're also supporting uh, the craftsmanship and the learning and the apprenticeships that, that mean that the industry remains sustainable. And I think, um, you know, even though we are a bespoke tailors, very, very you know, a heritage brand, uh, we are working very, very hard to be as relevant as possible to the, the, current, the current consumers. Uh, because if we don't prove our relevance, we, we die. And, and you'll be surprised or maybe not surprised to hear that you know, we are actually very open to using technology wherever, wherever possible because fundamentally, our number one priority as a retailer is to give our customers the best possible service. And, and what I'd say is even though we've got you know, bespoke cutters and bespoke tailors um, you know, in the basement at number one Savile Row today working away, wherever possible around them and, and actually even in the customer interaction itself, um, if we can utilize the latest technology to improve everything from the service and experience to the lead time, uh, then we have to do that to, to remain to remain relevant.
2: And what sort of technology are you using? Give uh, us an example. Emails.
0: Uh, so um, you know, we have a very, very interesting proposition. You know, Our business was established in bespoke tailoring. Uh, I jest, by the way, on that one. Um, you know, Our business was established in bespoke tailoring, but unlike the rest of our counterparts in Savile Row, we have a very, very big business in ready-to-wear, and we also have a very, very strong business in made-to-measure. So um, you know, if, if you understand retail parlance at all, that whole good, better, best is actually really, really clear for us. Uh, and at each different level, we probably utilize a different level of technology, uh, but always pertinent to the customer base and, and what the customer is expecting. And again, even though we were established in 1771, we have a fantastic e-com business. And very proud to say that our, our, our very passionate and dedicated e-com team relaunched a new platform on May the 1st and it's trading really, really well. So even though we are bespoke tailors, offering tailoring actually suits our our number one best-selling category online too.
2: Is it pronounced Geeves?
0: I wasn't going to take you up on that in person, but yes it is. Eves and <laughs> oh, I'm yes. such
2: a pleb Jeeves I've always it was, Jeeves, Jeeves was a butler as in Jeeves and Worcester yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought it was the same yeah. pa- no I that's knew right, it was the same
0: worry. man happens you, all the time
2: you said um, you said made in Britain where commercially viable you that's use correct. that caveat when, yes that's when right. is it commercially viable in your
0: so it's, experience so it's it's commercially viable when you can make a margin out of it and um, the reality is that, by its very nature, because of the cost, the cost implications in terms of you know, making in the UK, you know, production in the UK is, when compared with the rest of the world, very expensive. And you know, you got to remember, it's not just a you know, we're not just appealing to a UK customer base. We're appealing to a global customer base, and you know, they they our consumers understand you know what best value, what good value means. And um, listen, if, if we could make everything in the UK, I'd do it tomorrow and make money out of it. That's the reality of being in business. Um, but unfortunately, it's not. It's not that. Not that viable at the moment. I can say, you know, bespoke is 100% made by hand in Savile Row, and there is an open invitation to anybody that wants to go to Number One Savile Row. It's a retail store. We're very, we're very hospitable. So if you want to come in for a look, please do. Um, and then on the ready-to-air side and the made-to-measure side, probably at the moment about 40% of our production is UK-made. 4-0. 4-0, yeah. But we are, we are actively trying to grow the proportionate mix of made in UK. Um, it's very important in terms of our position in the marketplace. We, we like to think we stand for, you know... Best practice, UK made, etc. Um yeah, so, so so where we can we, we are we are trying to increase the, the, the proportion of mix, yeah.
2: Because some people might say if gives and hawks can't then nobody can.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we we sell we sell products at very expensive prices. I, I completely appreciate that. You know, probably way above the average. Um, we are using you know centres of excellence. Okay, not just in the UK but around the world to try to deliver what we believe is the best possible product available for our target market. And you know, as with any commercial entity, you know we're not in this for charity, unfortunately. We have, to, we have to basically justify our salaries ourselves by improving our commercial position as a business. And um, the costs of running a business are ridiculously high. So if there are any landlords in the room at all, you need to get, you need to get your thinking caps on.
2: All the landlords just left, I think. Okay, thank you very much um, for that. I'm sure we'll return to some of those themes. Uh, um, Stephen, on to you. Um, And I just want to: does does everybody here know about Future Fashion Factory? Does anyone know about Future Fashion Factory? (laughs) Great. So there you go. You could tell us about that as well.
3: Sure, yes. Thank you. Thank you very much for the introduction. Yes, I think um, just to try and summarize what the Future Fashion Factory program is all about. It's a a national initiative. It's a a, a large program. We have now over 70 companies involved. And it's about converging the newest advanced textile technology and digital technology in the fashion industry to add value. it's, It's for value creation purposes. And it's really dealing with the need to reduce the time it takes to develop products. So reducing our lead times and also reducing waste in a commercially practical way. Um, So that means shortening the time it takes us to develop new products. So those product development cycles can be very long in some cases, particularly in the high value luxury end of things, which is what we do very well in the UK. And the technology that we're developing is capable of reducing the time it takes for those products to be developed. But also, um, what we're also doing is harnessing UK manufacturer and design talent to do that. So hugely reducing geographic supply chains to, to make product that can't be made anywhere else effectively well. Um, and th- the final thing I would say within the program is about what I call designing right first time. So right product, right customer at the right time. If we did that well, all of the time, we'd have a lot less waste, we'd sell everything through and we would um, that would go down straight onto the bottom line in terms of revenue. And this issue isn't just about retail, it's also about the manufacturers of the yarn and the fabric. And there are manufacturers today, as, you, as you've gone around, you'll have noticed, who are doing that in the UK as well. And they need to be able to do things in a more efficient manner, so costs um, can be um, carefully controlled. So, yeah, so that, that's, that's what the programme's <laughs> about.
2: <laughs> Great, okay. Um, that's, a very, that's a very comprehensive um, uh, uh, overview. You mean long? no i don't it 's very <laughs> compact actually, which is what I was going to say next Very good we all think it was great so I just wanted to ask you, you you mentioned then I think about this kind of additionality so doing the things that we can only make here bringing them here so what are you what are you actually what are you talking about what are the things that we can only that we can only make here give us unwrap it a little bit tell us what products you're talking about
3: well I think, I think I should start really at some of the unmet needs that we have in the industry, and then it should become clearer what it is we'll be able to do, okay? So for example, if we were able to drive design by data, if we were able to use um, machine learning, deep learning, I'm not going to mention the buzzword AI, there are already companies who are using digital assistants to design the product right first time. And you can go right back down the supply chain to digital sampling and other technologies that allow us to do things more quickly and and customize them, personalize them to the target customer. Um, So there's a series of developments there which will allow us to do things here that we can't do easily elsewhere. The other area is around what I call digital communications so I'm working with companies who three or four years ago made 40 woven samples and sent them halfway across the world before a customer would say yes that's what I want meanwhile the loom is sitting doing nothing more or less huge amounts of time are being lost and they're turning away orders because they're having to wait for the other customer to say yes or no okay so if we are better at communicating accurately how something looks, the aesthetics, even the tactile properties of a fabric. Um, I'm not saying we would totally do away with the need for those transactions, but we could seriously shorten it. And that's just B2B before we even get to retail. Um, that's another area. And finally, because I can tell you maybe you don't want me to talk too long. <laughs> Um, The other thing I would just say is a series of technologies that I call late stage customization processes. All right, so imagine you could fire files um, up to the cloud or you could could get a loom or a spinning machine um, to work like a rapid prototyper, but it actually produces a real textile product. So it doesn't cost any longer, any more to make a few meters than it does to make 3,000 meters. That technology is getting nearer and nearer and we're developing those technologies. The key thing here for me with my commercial hat on is this is not about just developing some interesting technology to say, isn't this great? It's about focusing on where the need is and then co-developing it with those users so it doesn't get rejected later and can be adopted, it can be applied. That's the definition of technology, definition of technology. Scientific understanding applied for benefit. Okay. In my head.
2: Okay, <laughs> good. Uh, how many years are we from this happy day?
3: Well, I'm, I'm always ambitious, but um, some of the things that I've talked about, um, we're probably within a few months of. So some of the data-driven design tools that I talked about that are able to advise you about colorways, fit, and so on, already exists. It's just making it work in an applied way for each individual business correctly. Um, And I just wanted to add. Yes, please. The craft technology question, which is why we're here. Yeah. To me, that's a false dichotomy. There There is no conflict. A painter without a paintbrush A sculptor without a medium with which to sculpt would struggle to pursue their craft Um, so technology is just a tool and the craft is what turns it into something useful
2: thank Thank you you. our questions just been thrown out (laughs) but it wasn't very good to start with so fair enough thank you for that mark
4: on to you hi as as lucy said i'm i'm an it guy 35 years Um, my family a textile. My father was in the textile industry all his life. Um, my stepmom had a garment factory, um, which is where you said I got pulled into. Um, it was always going to happen. I was always going to end up there at some point. I got pulled in 2004 to do a couple of spreadsheets, basically, to look at profitability. What we ended up doing there was creating a system which ran end, end to end for them from the costing all the way through, made it manageable. Um, They they made made sure they were profitable, basically. Um, That that, that ran and ran. Um, I got um, contacted by Jenny Holloway, I'm sure everybody knows at Fashion Enter, back in um, 2013, saying, I've seen your system. Can we have a look at it? We're we're struggling. And that was at the time where we're looking at, as, as a techie, I'm looking at some way of where we could put a system cost-effectively into smaller businesses without the massive IT overhead. And that was the Galaxy's vision. Uh, we, so we said, okay, Jenny, let's, you can be a pilot. Let's put it in. So we put it in. We got all the uh, costing sorted, all the flow was going. But she, she basically said, look, we're losing money. We have turnovers there. We're just not making the profit. And the one thing that we weren't looking at was the labor. So basically, if you make it a garment, you cost your fabrics, you can nail all that. You, but labor, you give it your best guess. You say, okay, I'm taking this in. I'm gonna charge the retailer X amount and say we're gonna, it's gonna cost you three pounds to make it on the line. You put it on the line and, you, and it's best guess. It could be costing you four pounds. So what we did, we came up with, looked at, I mean, IT's there to, to help. We looked at all sorts of solutions, and um, what we effectively did was put some, replace the bundle tickets on the line. So basically, when the garment's going down the line, it's split into multiple operations. We put something on the line where we're tracking what the workers are actually doing. So when they start the process, we, we take a, a scan. They just basically scan a simple barcode. Everybody's seen a QR code. It's very simple. They scan that. The system knows that they've started that, and when they start the next one, it knows they've finished, it. and it does a it does a. Live calculation that said, okay, this is costing you 50p for this operation. So that gave them a view, gave them a view that, okay, yes, they were managing to hit the cost, and in some cases, they were going way over what they'd cost it at, so making no money. So Jenny was brave. Jenny said, okay, let's go back to the old days of piecework, performance pay. Let's pay them on the basis of the costing. Will it work? There was uproar in the factory. It's changed. People don't like change. They did threaten to leave, some of them. But they said, okay, we'll do it. We're guaranteeing the minimum wage. And what what Jenny did overnight was say, okay, we're going to pay on performance pay. Within a few weeks, production was up. And now, um, I think she's 40% up on production. The staff are are out of minimum wage now, they're um, earning huge bonuses. So it's, it pays for the workers. The workers are, you know, they're getting rewarded for their efforts. They've got a live view now of the production line so they can see what's happening. any at any minute, they can see what any, somebody's working on. It's also keeping them up to date with how far the order is through production. And that then gives us the possibility to let the retailers have a view of that if that's what the factories choose to do. But what it does give right at the end of the process is is a traceability. What we, Because we are connected to the fabrics that came in, and we know what worker worked on it, we can go all the way to the garment. We have a a tag on the garment that you scan, and it will actually, I mean, we've got a little demo, it shows you the faces of the workers, the person that stitched the sleeve, the person that did the overlocking, and how much time they spent. So it's the, and it will also tell you what the garment's made from. So we can go all the way back to the the yarn, to how much water was used and that stays with the garment up to the swing ticket to point point of sale. Now we're, we're working with some of the future fashion factory partners to take that further so that we, that traceability goes with the garment after it's sold right through to end of life where we can then look at the recycling options because we know what's in there. We know that these chemicals were used, these yarns were used, so how can it be recycled? So that's, that's not far away, we're actually already Progressing in that now. So, interesting, but it's, um, it's now out there for the industry. I mean, it, it gets away from, we all hear the horror stories about the slave labor, underpaying. But basically, what this will do is it, it will mean that a factory has to do things right.
2: And what has been the uptake from the industry mm-hmm. at large?
4: It's slow, it's, I'm, I'm being honest here, it, it's slow. There's a lot of talk about it, it's slow. It's difficult for t- to make these people change. It's difficult for the factories, it's also difficult for the retailers. It's a, it's a bit of a, a shift in, in attitude. Um, there's, people are scared of change. I've been in technology all my life, I know this. Nobody likes change, everybody likes the old way, they're comfortable with the old way of doing things. And technology isn't, it is disruptive. But sometimes it's disruptive for a reason. And yeah, we, need to, we need to, there's a problem here we need to address, not only from a traceability point of view, but also from a labor and, and, and wages point of view.
2: A cynic might say that the uptake hasn't been great because it's precisely the issue that people do not want to address.
4: I think there's a little bit of that. Yeah, you, you, you've got to say there's a little bit of that, but it's a difficult one. I, I've seen it from both sides. I see it from the retail. Obviously, I'm dealing with retailers. I'm dealing with factories on the factory floor. It's a difficult position. It's a difficult position, but it's a legal position. And, and we've got to give that message that you can. I mean, look, at Jenny's a prime example. Jenny's working in London. She's, she's sustaining and making profitable a profitable business making garments in the UK in a London factory, which means it can be done in, in the cheaper areas. It, it, it can be done.
2: Okay, great, there's some themes in there which I'm sure we will come back to and explore in due course. Thank you very much, Martin, thank you for that. Um, Andy, what's your current mood?
5: Tired.
0: Oh. <laughs> um,
5: so, four years ago, There were three guys that came to the make it. Well, it was meet the manufacturer at that point. We decided to have and partake in quite a few gins in London. Uh, We had a fantastic time being hosted by Kate. Because we were thinking about doing something quite stupid. We were thinking about bringing cotton spinning back to the UK. Now, that started with a conversation with an 84-year-old textile technologist that had spent... last four months in Barbados we honestly felt that he'd taken up a different habit and he might have been smoking something when he suggested to us that we should take our skills our craftsmanship our capability our staff and our know-how and go back and start thinking what we could do with that in a revolutionary way it took us some time it took a, a great deal of due diligence and a great deal of really looking at what the commercial proposition was, what the quality was, and what the value we were able to bring. And we brought cotton spinning back in 2015. We're able to spin cotton in the UK and I can be any mill on price anywhere in the world for a light for light product. So I'm using technology to its best benefit whilst using the craftsmanship of our staff, the skill staff, and the capability of our business. The latest technology allows us to also do short cycle management, lean approach where I can produce whatever yarn is needed at the time that's needed. You don't need three months, six months, nine months lead time. You can have it the same day. So the fast response, the rapid prototyping, the rapid capabilities there. Having counts of any count range, any twist base immediately so it reduces waste it reduces cost so we're able to give the consumer in our case a weaver or a knitter the product that they require on time to the correct volume and it's about taking out waste and adding value and adding quality that was our dream five years later how do I feel a bit less positive because the challenge with that is that the whole concept of being able to supply fashion fabrics and garments to the market requires a network of capability so from a yarn capability you need to weave it or you need to knit it from a knitting or a weaving capability you need to be able to finish it from a finished garment a finished fabric point of view you then need to be able to make that in a cmt operation to make the garment and to be successful you need each one of those elements to invest and to actually have the same viewpoint and the truthful point is in the UK at the present moment, that there is strengths and weaknesses within inside each of these areas. I've got to say today, there are weavers here uh, within with inside the exhibition, and please go and see them that can give rapid response to new designs. So one of the weavers, John Spencer Textiles that are here, please go and see David. He's produced 25 shirt lines for us within inside two weeks how quick do you want it to be? How fast do you want the consumer? So whether it's style, whether it's fashion, whether it's a new season, they can do it with inside one warp and it will take two weeks in color. That's rapid prototyping and, and actually knowing what the customer requires. The challenge then becomes is that that does need to be finished and then it does need to go through CMT. So when you look at the CMT operations of the UK, they're generally under When it comes to automation and speeding the response up and speeding the capability up whether that's in the digital process of taking design directly from a CAD system into a cutting regime or whether it's just about automating certain simplistic responses folding collars making plackets making cuffs that can be done in an automated process quite a lot of the businesses at the present moment are still doing them mechanically on a one-by-one basis they call that craftsmanship it isn't that's making a bespoke product. Craftsmanship comes in quality and value. So we are trying to adapt that and we are working directly with partners in the UK to actually produce high quality, high, high value product to the consumer, 100% manufactured in the UK.
2: It's very interesting this, because you are slightly suggesting that our notions of craftsmanship are allowing old fashioned practices which are barriers to carry on because we're a little bit maybe sentimentally attached to the notion of craftsmanship. I'd I'd like to get a, yes, sorry.
5: Yeah, I'd completely agree in actual fact. I don't think the definition of craftsmanship is known. Uh, I, I think a lot of people are saying just because they make it by hand or they make it in the old way, age old way of manufacturing it, they call it craftsman. Craftsmanship isn't that. Craftsmanship is about value and quality. And it's about capability and actually excellence. So just because it's made by hand doesn't mean it's a craftsman's product. You can actually make craftsman's product automatically with skill and capability.
2: Nick, I'd like to get your take on that, please. I
0: thought you might come that one, actually. That's interesting, yeah. So I think, firstly, I, I, I totally 100% respect, 100% respect anybody's opinion in terms of craftsmanship, bespoke, production, whatever. Um, I think from the point of view of our business, um, it was established in, um, in the, the craft of Bespoke. Um, we have got trainees, we have got um, craftspeople, definitions different for everybody, um, who have been with us for probably 30 to 40 years and they are gladly handing their skill and expertise be that craft or whatever, down to, uh, actually, there was a generational gap. So in fact, at the moment, we've got millennials coming through on the apprenticeship program quite rapidly. Um, and they are, they are gladly taking up the benefit of all that expertise from those very, very senior craftspeople, ateliers, artisans, whatever you want to call it, uh, in order that they want to sustain not only the industry, but also a career for themselves. Um, so i, 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 I 'm I'm not, I'm not sure how to round this off, but I think um, fundamentally um, you know, at the moment you know the markets are extremely dynamic um, they 've never been they 've never been uncompetitive, and I think um, whichever industry or sector that you 're in from from certainly from what i 'm learning at Gives and Hawkes, uh, you have to focus one hundred percent on your consumer, your customer, and your market. Uh, You have to know both absolutely intimately in order that whether you're making a handmade garment a, um, a made-to-measure garment, a customized garment, an accessory, or, or actually anything off the peg, you know that you're targeting the very, very best product that you can find at the very best price, representing the very best value for money in the eyes of your end user, the consumer, uh, to deliver a successful business model. And um, the reality is, um, you know, definitions are different. You know, we're, this is a very subjective industry. I think absolutely respect for the fact that, that the people's definitions are different. Um, but fundamentally, you've got, to focus, you've got to focus on your business right now. And uh, you know, the retail market is extremely challenging, um, but we are absolutely focused on our strengths of the business, which is basically men's tailoring in bespoke, made to measure and ready to wear. And, and I'm very proud to say that you know, we're performing really well. Uh, we're working very, very hard for every single penny. Um, but actually, our, our light for light numbers and our e-com numbers are, are very positive versus last year. So, you know, and I'm very happy to open the, up, up the books on that. It's an absolute fact. This is no, this is no hot air, you know.
2: What, what attracts the millennials then to work in to get to sustain this craft? Well,
0: I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, again, you know, I, I sit up here not as an expert for your for your benefit, just just to sort of share my experience. That's really important because, again, you know, we work in a very very subjective industry. But what I would say is, uh, and this is not this is not a, a tidal wave of pushback against technology, but I, I do I do find that um, you know the individuals we've got coming through either on you know, work experience or um, apprenticeships um, are really passionate about making something. And about delivering a customer service to a, to a customer who, who walks away delighted in the fact they've got a garment that is that is made specifically for them.
2: Because there is a school of thought, isn't there, that this kind of narrative and this sort of making something and this you know that that all counts for something, especially in a in a market where we are throwing out you know billions of new product every year. That that sort of narrative carries.
0: Well, if I can just say without butting in, I think you know actually when you consider the amount of waste, I mean, fashion is a really really dirty industry. Hands up. I've worked for M&S, John Lewis, the big boys, you know, there is an awful lot of waste in our industry. Um, Sustainability is fundamentally important to everything, not just in the business world, but also in terms of the environment. I totally appreciate that. Um, Actually, the the garments that are made exclusively, so be it customized, made to measure, or bespoke, by their very nature, they are far less wasteful and I think that's very important too. So it's like, we're not, we're not sitting here, I'm not sitting here holier than anybody else, and I've inherited an amazing business uh, for, the, for the moment, but actually the, the customized model itself is a very, very sustainable model.
2: Okay, so it's a defense of craft down this end. And that narrative, these inherent sustainable, sustainable qualities, all of this kind of stuff, that counts for something. But you can't necessarily, Stephen, you know, the data analytics and all the rest of it will you know, cannot really uh, supplant these qualities that a craft fashion piece has inherently.
3: Yeah, I don't think uh, we're necessarily talking about replacing... Uh, I think if you set them as two opposite worlds, you, there is a problem, but you know, d- data science is informing lots of industries. It's informing the design of, of products all over the world very successfully. It doesn't mean that it, it replaces craft. It just means it, means it just provides a tool um, to assist with decision-making, okay? So for example, I have a colleague you might think this is a strange thing to try and do, but I have a colleague who spends his time um, writing software to attach colorways to emotive words. And so if you if you come up with a word like luxury and you want that to be pointed at the Japanese market, let's say, or the East Coast of the US or the West Coast of the US, you don't get the same um, colorway associated with that with, this, with that particular word. So the point is, of course, you could you could try and do it all manually. You could try and do it without the assistance of um, computers. But if you use it in a rational way, already companies outside the fashion industry are using these sorts of approaches to try to get the design nearer to being right first time. It doesn't mean that it replaces Um, many of the traditional processes that we would then use to deliver, let's say, a garment. But it means that you can do it a hell of a lot quicker with a higher degree of precision based on millions and millions of calculations done within seconds. Um, So it's it's not quite a self-driving vehicle yet, but you get the idea, a a sort of data-driven design world is getting closer, the capability to do that is getting closer and closer, but but it, but it won't replace the human being. It still needs to be rationally um, processed. Yeah.
2: Well, I wish your colleague the best of luck with their, <laughs> their endeavors. I'm not sure that right first time is the most romantic sort of proposition that brings in all these elements of the fashion industry. I mean, do you think the consumer, the customer will will, love it
3: well i I think there's an impact on the price there's an impact on the waste i'd love it if you get it it. if you get it right first time right you can order it on a friday and get it on a monday potentially you make a hell of a lot less waste you sell everything through at full price you don't have discount stores and you don't have you don't have metric thousands of metric tons of landfill waste of clothing which has only been worn once or twice,
2: right? Okay. You, have da-
3: you have data-driven design going on.
2: <laughs> what do I know? Right, let's take some questions because I just noticed the time is leaping on. Who's got question, please, for all of or any of our panel? We've been here before. In about five minutes, everyone will have a question. Okay, do you want to think about a question for a bit? Okay, this is, this is your notice. I'm coming back to you. Okay, um, I'd like to, um, for us, just to discuss... How could legislation help with the current... I'm going to start with you, Andy, because you suggested that um, we were at a bit of a uh, stumbling block. So let's, let's have some blue sky thinking, which I know is very odd in the current context. But how could and must legislation help?
5: Well, as far as we are concerned and as far as um, what we are seeing is concerned, there's a complete dishonesty throughout the whole of um, the industry in terms of there are garments that are entering the UK market that are readily available, that are sold to the UK consumer at less cost than the raw material. So, and that has been prevalent for a number of years and in actual fact continues to grow. And that in itself, with inside society, starts a whole concept of the way that clothing and that garment is valued by the, by the purchaser. It's at such low disposable cost that they buy it, sometimes they send it back, sometimes they just throw it in the bin, they might not even wear it. They've got no concept of actually what goes into that product. Now I'm not standing here saying, do you know how much a sewing machinist needs to earn to make that garment? That's not what I'm talking about. But the role of legislation and government is to actually stop that moral position. What it should absolutely do and what, it, what its role is to do is to actually make sure that there is an ethical level playing field. That if there are anti dumping policies of certain countries or certain environments that are coming into the UK economy, they should stop them. They do with steel, they do with cars, but they don't seem to want to actually grasp that nettle that at the moment.
2: In fact, we've been sort of promised the off- opposite. If you look at some of the rhetoric in the run-up to Brexit, so Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I've noticed this several times, um, I would include other politicians, but he's the one I've really noticed, has consistently promised cheaper clothing. Good on him. Right, so how is he going to achieve that? So He, there, he s- isn't. Right.
5: Putting it bluntly. You know, the Currently we all know the situation where you can go onto the high street and go to the discount retailers on the high street and you can buy, we talk about this every year at this exhibition, you you can buy a dress or a two-piece jacket for less than it costs for not only the raw material but less than it costs to actually turn a machine on. Now that incorporates the profit of that retailer and I'm not questioning the property of that retailer. All retailers have to be able to pay their land rent. So they have to make a profit on that garment. They then look at the garment and it's bought either with subsidy via a government. So there are certain Eastern countries that subsidize textile. You know, uh, speaking on the yarn perspective, there are a number of large UK users of yarn that are buying yarn at a cost that's lower than the raw material price. So there is nothing in it, there's nothing being put onto the price of the yarn for spinning it. There are a number of garment manufacturers that are buying fabrics at a cost of the yarn. So there's nothing in it for the weaving. Now these are main high street retailers that understand the cost of the raw material because they're involved in the farming, the agronomy, the actual material itself. So it's been self propagating so that what What has actually happened throughout the whole of the system is retailers buy as cheaply as they possibly can. Manufacturers buy as cheaply as they possibly can because they all need to be able to make profit and there isn't an honesty with inside the system.
2: So what would be the legislative uh, mechanism? What would you be asking for?
5: I'm not a politician, but what the role of the government is is to actually make sure that whichever market that they're working in, so whether we're talking about Europe or the UK is that other countries aren't denigrating the industries of the UK, or at least there is a level playing field to be able to work on. So if they find product that is being dumped by support of other governments, they put a tariff on it. So what happens with steel at the present moment, there's an anti-dumping tariff for stainless steel against China and against India.
2: Did you give evidence to the Environment, Environmental Audit Committee? No. Were you asked to? No. Would you have done? Potentially because we have ended up for the I don't know if you're all aware of the um, EAC but you you um, we have ended up with uh, a couple of recommendations including a sort of levy on used clothing but this is this is far deeper in the supply chain isn't it so yeah yeah I just think it's an it, interesting point. It, It's
5: total amounts of the supply chain and you know I'm not here to criticize anybody within that supply chain because they've got to run the business we've got to run profitable businesses but what what's key about this is that a, a country of our size needs to be able to clothe its, its populace if it can't clothe its populace or it can't feed its populace it's always in the hands of other countries to be able to do whatever they, they, they want to do with that so it's a moral perspective now to be able to do that the, the companies within inside the country have to invest and they have to invest in technology and take the waste out take out the cost, try and make it as efficiently as possible because that's a requirement of of, of modern society. But once that happens, if they then produce a product that is still five times more expensive of what it's been sold at, there's something wrong and government has to step in and say, this isn't a level playing field any longer.
2: Okay, thank you. Mark, what's your dream bit of legislation?
4: From my point of view, obviously what we talked about earlier, We've been looking at the labour. Yeah. Um, there is a there is legislation about minimum wage. That's all. That's all legal. It all exists. But we know that that's not complied with. Uh, not across the across the um, certainly across the garment market. We know that that happens. I think government know that happens. Um, what we what we've got uh, the solution that we have if we put it in a factory, they have to comply. It, it looks at minimum wage. It says this is what should be paid. Now. Should we legislate? If it's legislated, then it's gonna... Ha- the, the legislation already exists, the law of minimum wage, etc., exists already, and it's been flouted at the moment. What, what we will do with the re- retailer's buy-in is that we will just flag that up, and all the retailers have to say is, your garments aren't made legitimate. We, we, we've got a, a means of detecting where it was made, who made it, how long it took, and what the actual cost was. If if that factory can't prove that, then the retailer just has to say no. You're not you're not playing fair. So it's not really a legislation, but probably a, an industry take up that would be necessary.
2: Is there something around the way that the modern slavery act was was put into force? And I know you know people have varying opinions on how effective it is, but there was um, pressure brought to bear through a sort of public campaign led by you know. Um, House of Lords Select Committee and all the rest of it. So it was more that there was a lot of attention on it at the time.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of it was, was focused on other industries as well, car washes and things like that. I don't think a lot of the public understand what actually goes on in some of these factories. And you can't necessarily, yes, you can blame the factories for not complying, but you can see the pressures are all over from the market, from payment terms, from, from pressures on price and, 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 and fighting for business. So it can be done, there isn't a big part. You see when you had the retailers up here, the the 5% UK. I mean, we had a massive UK garment industry and it all went overseas. So what you've got, the dregs of that work, it's not coming back at the pace that it could do. But I think a lot of that is that the retailers aren't confident to use, it's, it's chicken and egg, the retailers aren't confident that the factories are playing fair. And the factories are having to do what they have to do, whether it's legal or not.
2: Okay, thank you, I think. <laughs> Stephen.
3: Um, I think clearly there needs to be proper enforcement. Um, we, many of us know what's going on. Um, some people are being paid below the minimum wage to make garments to meet a price point right now. And if you go in and you buy a really cheap garment from a big retailer, and it, it isn't at a certain level, you can be almost certain that it's, that, that it's probably not been made in the way it should have been. What being do you mean really a certain honest. level? What I mean is that there's a, there's a price for everything and there's a cost for everything. I, I just wanted to say, it's actually amazing that in today's world, in this developed economy in the UK, there are manufacturers in, in the UK right now Who can manufacture garments at a point which can be sold into a big fast fashion retailer environment. We're not talking about huge changes but we're so close to the threshold sometimes that there are practices going on as Marcus talked about which are not acceptable and they will be enforced. But the good news story is with a little bit of effort with a little bit extra we can manufacture garments at the fast fashion end of things still in the UK economically. That, that, that would surprise quite a few people. Um, but where we're pushing the limits and we are right down at the margins, you know, those companies who are not operating correctly are putting a slur on the whole industry, putting a slur on those that, that want to try and do things properly. So we, we do have to sort it out. But but it's great news that there are, that it's possible to make garments at, at a pretty low price point still in the UK. It surprises a lot of people. That still is, it goes on. But
2: it's very hard to call them out, isn't it? And I know this because I've tried it very, many, many times. And, you know, they have big fancy law firms and PR companies. And, you know, they're quite embedded in many in many cases. So, like, just just how do, who who calls them out and how do we call them out? Surely there needs to be some sort of legislation to get over this hurdle.
3: Well, there is, there is legislation called the minimum wage already, yeah. of course. Um, and... Uh, um, I, th- I think there's a greater desire in government to, to root out these difficulties. And I think many of the brands, many of them, have, are really seriously trying to make sure that their supply chains are secure in the UK. Uh, but, but, you know, I think in places there's still work to be done.
2: Okay, yeah. great. Thank you. Nick?
0: Okay, so um, if I can just say two things, actually. Hold it like so it's not, it's not one, it's that's two, it. that's better, isn't it? Yeah, should I go back over again? Start again, should yeah, Okay, <laughs> fine, so um, two things, actually. There's, there's, there's one on manufacturing, and there's one on training. And um, you know, the combination of the two will support sustainability. Um, and the first on manufacturing, I'd say, well, you know, if, you, if you look at the US, where you know, say what you like of Trump, um, he's imposed a protectionist policy. In terms of his economy and his manufacturing, and lo and behold, the economic stats out of the U.S. are looking very, very healthy, which is why you know, he's still in he's still in position. So I think if the if the government are serious about anything, specifically about supporting long-term sustainable UK manufacturing, they've got to they've got to support manufacturers by making the global market um, a level playing field and and you know grant grants. Uh, some sort of level of support that that, that supports at least at the outset, um, you know, a, a reignition of the manufacturing sector in the UK, and then um, the second element was around training, and you know it's not just for my business but for every business. You know, um, succession and talent is a is a real problem, um, and uh, the apprenticeship levy for anybody who's dealt with it is an absolute disgrace, and I've told I've told members of Parliament this to their face um it's not it's not that the methodology is wrong um you know supporting apprentices is fundamentally important in terms of securing the futures of any business but the actual scheme itself is impossible to facilitate without support and i think mean, that is an absolute travesty well, it's too complex far too complex yeah and um I think, yeah, you know, I, I have found personally that you. Know, I think it puts off more people than it puts on in terms of actually drawing apprentices into their business. And I know that every person I know who runs a business or founds a business, you want young people coming through. Why wouldn't you want that? So, um, so those are those are tips So. so probably a slightly more protectionist stance on UK manufacturing you know, with grants to support you know, a, a longer term sustainable future there and um, you know, not an abolition of the apprenticeship at all, actually uh, a reset and review to make it more user friendly to, to ensure we do have you know, a, a stronger and deeper pipeline of apprentices coming through the businesses.
2: Well, Trump's coming over soon. Maybe you give them yeah. some tips. Is that what you
0: think well, that's- Yeah. We, well, I mean, I mean, just to say, I mean, we, we have the privilege of three raw warrants, and um, you know, good old Prince Charles is kicking in every every warrant holder's butt. In terms of sustainability, at the moment, and um, you know, that, that's also very important. If we, if we as a business, as a warrant holder, um, don't deliver a bona fide a sustainability strategy and actually deliver on that strategy, then we, we get we get kicked off the warrant list. So you know, there's a very very re- you know, what's great is there is a what's quite frightening for me actually, but there's a very very real challenge for us to you know, remain highly relevant and actually deliver on you know, not just not just talk the talk but walk the walk as well. You know.
2: Okay, thank you. I'm afraid I've just noticed the time and you lost your opportunity for questions. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I had to revoke it because if we don't stay on time now, we're gonna be in really, really deep trouble. So, um, are, are you guys sticking around?
4: Yeah. Yes? Yes. Yeah, sure. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, so we're going to have to take questions off stage. I'm sorry about that, but we've got to keep keep going uh, today because we've got a really hectic schedule and we've got uh, two more keynotes for you. So um, I'm going to say thank you for that huge amount of knowledge imparted in a very short space of time. So uh, a huge thank you to the panel, to, um, uh, to all of you, and can we have a round of applause to the panel and they will take questions just off stage stage. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday and Friday, plus there's also bonus episodes occasionally. So don't forget to subscribe in your favourite podcast app so that you get notified every time a new episode goes live. And if you enjoyed the show, I would really love it if you left me just a little review on iTunes. The more reviews this podcast receives, the more people will discover it and the more we can spread the word about making in the UK. Thanks once again for listening to the Make It British podcast. Bye bye.